This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss U.S.-Russia relations, uh, an enduring topic, a topic that has been in some ways fundamental to American policy and American politics since at least the mid-20th century, and one can take this story back a lot earlier, of course. Today, U.S.-Russia relations are one of the most volatile and significant set of uh, foreign policy relations in the world. And there are also a set of relations that have a deep effect upon American domestic politics. Our debates about elections, our debates about domestic legitimacy have in many ways revolved around relations with Russia over the last four to eight years. We're joined today by a longtime friend, colleague, highly respected writer and policy thinker, who I think has done some of the most important work on understanding the long history of Russian-U.S. relations and the relevance of that history for today. This is our friend, Dr. Michael Kimmage. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Zachary and, and, and Jeremy, for having me. Wonderful to be back on your show. It's really wonderful to have you back on, Michael. Michael is, as many of you know, a professor of history at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and he's chair of the Advisory Council for the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. And as I'm sure many of our listeners know, the Kennan Institute is one of the premier think tanks for Russian politics and U.S.-Russian uh, relations uh, in the United States, named for George Kennan, of course. From 2014 to 2017, Seventeen, uh, Michael served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department, where he was uh, responsible for the Russia and Ukraine portfolio. He publishes widely on international affairs, on U.S.-Russia relations, and American diplomatic history. He's also a historian of intellectual life and written a terrific book on Lionel Trilling and the conservative turn in American politics. The full title is The Conservative Turn, Lionel Trilling, Whitaker Chambers, and the Lessons of Anti-Communism. He's also written a book on Philip Roth in History's Grip, Philip Roth's Newark Trilogy. And most recently, a book I highly recommend to all of our listeners, a book we did a podcast episode on uh, a few months ago, uh, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy that looks at how ideas of the West were so important to uh, the formation of American foreign policy and how important those ideas remain today. And most recently, Michael has published an article that I can commend to everyone in Foreign Affairs, uh, co-authored with Michael Kaufman, Russia Won't Let Ukraine Go Without a Fight, uh, very relevant for where we are with uh, U.S.-Russian-Ukrainian relations today. So we have a lot to talk about with Michael. Before we turn to our discussion, though, we have, of course, um, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Uh, what's the title of your poem today, Zachary? The Most Careful Stalemate. The Most Careful Stalemate. Is that about our dinner debates? <laughs> if only. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those aren't stalemates because I crush you. <laughs> For those who are listening, Zachary is, is smirking right now. Uh, okay, Zachary, let's hear your poem. I like to think that when the border guard is done staring down the soldier and unfolds his sandwich from the lunch pail, he wonders what it's really supposed to be, the flag that watches him from across the road, an eagle, a seascape, an avalanche. 
I wonder if, in that moment, he really thinks about history, about the history of the great men, of the great men who speak to each other through the sublime speakerphones of the Washingtons and Whitehalls and Kremlins of the world, or does he simply want to know whether it will rain or snow? I like to think there comes a realization that when the armies have put down their missile launchers and opened their lunch pails in unison, it dawns on all of them how mundane the modern war is. And yet, the most quiet war, the most careful stalemate, can be all the more violent in its silence. And they go back to their posts and wonder what paperclip the other side is using to hide their tails, I'm sure all in a day's work, all in a day's work. And meanwhile, perhaps, it is comforting to us behind the lines when we walk to pick up our peasants' cabbages from the garden rows beside the brook that we don't really have to wonder what it means to hold the earth between our fingers, that soil is soil because a soothsayer said so and not because we christened it. I I love the ending in particular, Zachary. What, What is your poem about? My poem is really about trying to move beyond this idea that war and and the sort of violent clash between societies is some is a phenomenon that is defined by great leaders when it's really sort of defined by the mundane actions of our daily lives and sort of about the sort of creeping violence that war imposes on everyday life. Hmm. Hmm. Michael, I think that sets the scene well for thinking about US-Russian relations, huh? Indeed, indeed it sets the scene beautifully. How is it that since the end of the Cold War, Michael, uh, uh, when it appeared as if uh, U.S.-Russian relations were going to enter uh, a period of comedy and collaboration, how is it that, as as Zachary put it, this sort of ethos and tenor of violence uh, has remained so prominent? What, What happened at the end of the Cold War that might help to explain the tensions of today? I can begin on a very general level. It's, of course a rich and very, very nuanced question that I think we as historians, even putting policymakers to the side, we as historians are just beginning to piece together the many puzzles that lie behind this question. I'll reflect on this in a pessimistic vein, and I think that you know there are ways in which the two countries managed things quite capably since 1991, but I'll focus on the enmity, as you, as you say. And if you look back to the end of the Cold War in search of that enmity, in search of the sources of that enmity, I think you can find two very general explanations. And one is that the United States official Washington did not understand the end of the Cold War particularly well. Uh, it made a lot of intellectual mistakes in its understanding uh, of the end of the Cold War, one of which was that the Cold War really put an end uh, to a lot of the problems that had been simmering uh, in Eastern Europe for a very, very long time. Uh, and probably the most unfortunate intellectual era of the early 90s, late 90s, and you know, it sort of trickles down to today in some ways, is this notion that the United States won the Cold War. Uh, it did encourage, as many have observed with the Iraq War, other events in mind, a kind of arrogance uh, or, or hubris. And the, the crucial problem of that hubris was a, s- a certain inability to see the outside world. We can return to that theme later in our discussion uh, if if you'd like to, Jeremy and Zachary. The second general story, uh, I would say, is that Russia <laughs> became Russia after the Cold War. Uh, and it took a while for this to happen. Uh, we have an anomalous decade 
uh, of the 1990s, I think, when the country country of Russia was trying to figure out what it was uh, and romanticize the West, romanticize its own connection to the West, uh, and was at the same time financially and militarily uh, weak. Uh, that began to change uh, in the early 2000s or even in the late 1990s, uh, and you see an uptick in confrontation between the United States and Russia already at the time of the Kosovo War and with other events in the late 1990s. Uh, and then when Putin comes to power in 2000, he starts to push what you could describe as a much more traditionally Russian agenda, uh, military modernization uh, and exerting influence uh, in the in, in the periphery. Uh, and so gradually, it doesn't happen uh, in a sudden fashion at all, but gradually from 2000 uh, to 2008, you see a deterioration in the relationship. There's a bit of a hiatus between 2008 and 2012, the reset when Medvedev is seemingly at the helm. Uh, and then 2011, 2012, the deterioration really sets in uh, in earnest. But if we're to go back to the 1990s, I think we need to understand how Russia becomes uh, Russia once again, uh, and we need to understand some of the blinkers that the United States acquired in those uh, in those years that made it hard for the U.S. to interpret the outside world. That puts it very well, Michael, and really helps us to understand, I think, two poles of this discussion. Let's start with the latter one, maybe. What does it mean for Russia to become Russia? This, of course, is an age-old question going back to at least Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and many before them. Um, but, but what does it mean in this context of the late 20th, early 21st century? The way that I understand it, um, and one could go back here even to the, uh, to the 17th century, uh, and one of the things that, that it means for Russia to be Russia uh, is this very vexed problem of what the Western border is. And what you see in the 1990s is Yeltsin and, and before him Gorbachev really accepted a great retrenchment of Soviet slash Russian power. The border moved, if you want to put it this way, from sort of East Berlin uh, and East Germany all the way back to, you know, sort of uh, the territories beyond Ukraine and, uh, and, and, and Belarus. And so under Putin, you see a movement in the opposite direction. Uh, and you really return to what's one of oldest, one of Europe's oldest geopolitical problems. Where does Russia end and where does Europe uh, begin? You, know, you can revisit the Napoleonic Wars then. Uh, you can go to the First World War. You can go to the Second World War. And they all, to a degree, revolve around this question of where Europe's influence is uh, going to come to a kind of natural limit point and where Russia's influence is going to come to a uh, a natural limit point. Uh, and that's such a contested, difficult, uh, and uh, problematic issue. And I think when I think of the U.S. forgetting about things in that moment of pride and, and perhaps of hubris in the 1990s, I think that's one of the things that we forgot, that this is just, has almost the status of an eternal European problem. We're right smack in the middle of it at the present, uh, at the present moment. I think the other thing for Russia to be Russia I don't want to say autocracy and, and, and the absence of democracy. I think that that's a cliche, uh, and that's well worth challenging. Uh, but uh, there is a very traditional pattern in Russian politics where technology transfer and modernization is pursued for military ends. Uh, it's not true with every czar. It's probably true with most general secretaries. I don't know if it was necessarily true under Yeltsin, but it's certainly true under Putin. And in that sense, he's quite a traditional Russian leader, that he's going to use whatever economic instruments he has, and he has some considerable ones for the sake of modernizing the military and then ultimately for the sake of using the military. And these two points converge, of course, on you know, how Russia is going to interpret uh, the problems that crystallize around its, its, its western border. 
And, and Michael, just to put a point on it, is it fundamentally an insecurity about the Western border? I think it's two things. You know, it's the it's an eternal philosophical question about Russian foreign policy. Is it, in its own terms, offensive or defensive? I think it's usually both. Uh, there are questions of status and pride, you know, that <clears throat> very commonly accrue to empires and to former empires or you know, wannabe empires. That's uh, certainly at stake. Um, you know, there is uh, uh, a strong defensive impulse that uh, wouldn't really go back to Napoleon in the case of contemporary Russian strategic culture, but certainly goes back to the Second World War. Uh, and then there can be romantic, you know, sort of civilizational associations uh, that in particular Russia has with uh, with Ukraine, the sense of Kiev as the mother of all Russian cities and a religious bond. Now, Ukrainians might feel that this is uh, repellent and, and not their point of view at all, but it plays a role certainly in Putin's imagination uh, and also compels Russia to act uh, at times forthrightly, at times aggressively outside of its own borders. So I think it's a merger of those uh, of those things. It's sort of defensive and offensive simultaneously. Right, right. And, and in fact, they're seen as one of the same from, from the cockpit of Russian power as such. Uh, Michael, I wanted to turn to your first uh, polarity, the the um, American blinders. And, and I was reading the other day some of the transcripts that are now available of Bill Clinton's meetings with Boris Yeltsin, these long, long lunches that seem to have gone on for four hours and included multiple courses and multiple <laughs> beverages. And, um, it does appear, though, that Bill Clinton really wanted to have a close relationship with Russian leader Boris Yeltsin, and really wanted to um, work out an arrangement in Clinton's terms that would be a win-win for both societies. Um, there seems to be a lot of goodwill, I think, between Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin when you read these transcripts. And I know you, you know this material quite well. So that said, how is it that in spite of the positive personal relationship and the, I think, efforts at creating win-win situations after the Cold War, how is it that the United States was still blind to Russian interests, as you, as you said? Yes, I think it's a perfectly framed uh, question. I think that Bill Clinton invested greatly in the U.S.-Russian relationship. There were never more meetings between heads of the two countries as there were in the, in the Clinton-Yeltsin uh, period. Uh, and, you know, I think Bill Clinton was a very capable foreign policy uh, president and was really trying to do his best. So I would impute no sinister motives to him, uh, and you know, no kind of crude, uh, no crude hubris. Uh, and you know, we get now into the very, very fraught question of NATO expansion, um, which figures a lot in the rhetoric of Putin. So I think we have to pay uh, close attention to it. And I think that there was a blinder uh, at work there that. NATO expansion could be defined entirely in terms of what the will of the Central and Eastern European countries were, and also as a democratizing vehicle, and a certain unwillingness to see that NATO, of course, is going to have geopolitical implications and is going to have a kind of geopolitical resonance uh, in Russia. And I think it was never seriously considered, although Yeltsin floated the idea, and actually Putin did as well, of having Russia join NATO. That was never seriously considered. So it was a bit of a naivete, I suppose, about what was going to come uh, in uh, in the future. And I would make one further criticism that comes from these, uh, these blinders. I think good diplomacy has a lot to do with long-term incentives. And I think what we fail to do, and I don't know if it's Clinton's fault or if it's a structural thing or maybe it was just destiny, but I think what we fail to do 
after the Cold War, we, meaning the United States and its European allies, was to incentivize Russia to sort of join the club. And again, I'm not sure if this was a doable project. Uh, it may not have been. Uh, but I will criticize our diplomacy for not exploring that with greater rigor, uh, with greater imagination, uh, just with greater emphasis. What would be the incentives? You know, not to bring Russia into NATO, that was probably a fool's errand, but what would be the incentive to sort of bring Russia into Europe, as it were? And I mean not economically or culturally, I mean really in the kind of military uh, or geostrategic sense. And I don't know why that wasn't uh, done with, with with a sort of more enterprising spirit if the expectation was that Russia was a democracy and so it wasn't going to be a big problem, if the expectation that Russia had sort of knocked itself out <laughs> at the end of the Cold War so this as the Soviet Union and, and wasn't really going to return. I don't know. But I think that there was something that was a, a, of a lost opportunity that, that, that did come from this hubristic uh, mood and sort of hubristic feeling that was there after the Cold War. But it's not a, a great sin of Clinton's. It's a it's a... It's it's a it's a modest sin uh, given what he was trying to accomplish, but but it's there to be sort of unearthed, I think, from the historical record. How do we understand Russian popular opinion during this period? Uh, it seems to me somewhat odd uh, that after the the seeming promise of the end of the Cold War, that it seems like it's sort of fall, the the the, the Rus- Russian society has seemed to fall into this pattern of of depending. Uh, solely on the promise of of greatness or economic success, uh, why has Russian popular opinion not shifted in the way that I think many Americans expected it to ten years ago? It's a wonderful question, Zachary. I think that it has the answer to it has two components. It's almost like a romantic relationship that goes awry, uh, and I think it's often useful to think of the U.S. Russian relationship in those terms. <laughs> of a failed marriage in some respects, uh, or a bad relationship. I think that there was an infatuation, there was a love affair that broke out in the 1990s in post-Soviet Russia, a sense that American culture was beguiling and interesting, America was affluent, it was powerful, uh, it had won the Cold War, so there you get the, you know, it's the same conclusion uh, drawn from, from, from the other side. Uh, and there was a fantasy that was projected onto America in terms of the role it would play in Russia, uh, probably in terms of the country that it uh, that it actually was. And that, I think, describes the early to mid-1990s. And then there's the economic crash, and there are certain moments of tension between the U.S. and Russia, former Yugoslavia, a few other issues. And I think the love affair comes to an end. Uh, and, you know, sometimes the greatest bitterness is, rever- is reserved for those who we once you know, sort of loved or wanted to love. Uh, and if you want to psychologize about the U.S.-Russian relationship, you can think uh, to a degree uh, in those in those terms, but let me emphasize a second part of the uh, of or perhaps a third part of the story when it comes to the two thousand and two thousands in terms of Russian public opinion. And I think it's a very complicated point to consider uh, in light of a potential renewed war between Russia and Ukraine in the winter of 2021-2022. What Russians gained after the end of the Cold War was not great prosperity, and it was not democracy. Uh, and it was not great power status, uh, or at least not immediately. What they gained after the end of the of the Cold War, and especially under Putin, uh, was a kind of normalcy. You have a big growth of the middle class after the year 2000. Putin doesn't create rule of law in Russia, but he creates a lot of predictability. Uh, and if you would look at the city of Moscow now in 2020 compared to what it was in 2000, it's a much more livable, humane, vibrant, interesting, normal, dare one say, European city. Uh, than it was in the 1990s. And so Russians won this kind of normalcy. 
And that creates a certain kind of affection for Putin and it creates a certain kind of affection for the state that he's built. And so that makes me very curious about why Putin at the present moment would gamble in that respect, why he would roll the dice militarily and perhaps imperil the normalcy that probably is the greatest uh, foundation of his legitimacy, such as it is. And, and Michael, that actually leads perfectly into the question I had uh, that just takes us one step back from where we are today, which is to Ukraine in 2014. And this is when uh, Putin uh, basically does what had, has not happened very often, at least in around Europe and Central Asia, uh, which is to actually seize territory in a, in a very traditional way, sending his forces into Crimea into uh, an area that uh, was part of Russia, then had been transferred to Ukraine, an area uh, of strategic importance, and Putin claimed historical importance, seizes this area from Ukraine and begins a low-scale, continuous insurgency in the eastern part of Ukraine. Why the obsession with Ukraine in 2014 for Vladimir Putin? Let me just qualify your question in one way, uh, Jeremy, that you have an unresolved sort of territorial dispute in Moldova that begins right after the end of the, uh, of the Cold War. Of course, Chechnya is a, is a region of, 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 of political Russia, uh, but you have sort of multiple wars or a long war that's fought throughout the 1990s uh, by Yeltsin and then by Putin uh, in Chechnya. And then, of course, in 2008, you have the Russian-Georgia war, which does result in Russia sort of uh, lopping off two bits of territory in Georgia, which haven't been returned uh, returned since. So there's a bit of a precedent for what happens in 2014 in the sort of post-Soviet space or in 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 uh, in, in, in and around uh, and around Russia. But what happens in Ukraine is quite a bit more uh, is quite a bit more uh, more dramatic. Um, I understand 2014 as to a degree accidental. Uh, I think that Putin didn't expect Yanukovych, who was the pro-Russian figure who gets, uh, you know, sort of hounded out of Ukraine, uh, corrupt, the instigator of the, uh, of the Maidan uh, revolution, the inspiration for the Maidan revolution. Uh, and I think part of what Putin does in, in January, February, March of 2014 is in a very impulsive way, make a move. I don't think it was a blueprint. I don't think it was something he had been planning for a long time. I'm sure that there were certain plans on the shelf, uh, but I think he sort of impulsively goes in uh, and then the results for him are very mixed. Uh, Crimea, by Russian standards, public opinion, uh, we could return to that uh, in light of Crimea, uh, but also Russian politics, that's a win for Putin. Uh, The sanctions are not intolerable. Uh, In some ways, the issue has been kind of forgotten about in European and U.S. foreign policy, uh, and he's, you know, sort of gotten away with it, and it contributes to his popularity. The Donbass, on the other hand, and I think this is very important for understanding what Putin may do in the next couple of months, is an albatross around Putin's neck. It's corrupt. It doesn't give him any real leverage in Ukraine. Uh, it's a source of, of, of contention between Putin and, and, and Europe, Putin uh, and the West. And so he's the victim of his own policy choice uh, in, uh, in that respect. And you know, to understand his motivations, I think we could go back to that mix that we were talking about earlier. There's a bit of romanticism, Ukraine, the sort of brother country of, uh, of Russia. There's a certain sense of being defensive, the feeling of Western encroachment, probably a misreading uh, of Western intentions uh, in 2014, but the sense that the U.S. was kind of moving in uh, in that uh, in that year, uh, and then finally a kind of imperial impulse, where 
uh, who is to tell Russia that they don't have the right to control <laughs> the problems that they perceive on their borders? Uh, and you know, so if we have that right, let's uh, let's let's exert it. But the results are very mixed, and the situation at the moment for Russia is essentially unresolved. And that's the crux of the problem at the present moment. They are not going to sit in the situation forever. They're going to do something to alter it. And and just for our listeners uh, who might not be as familiar with the geography, the Donbass is a southeastern region of Ukraine where there are a large number of uh, Russian separatists or separatists who would like to be part of Russia. And as part of the 2014 invasion of Crimea, Putin also gave support to these separatists, which, which, you're, which you're explaining created, in a sense, a, a quagmire for him, Michael. Is that fair? Yes, or at the very least a useless uh, appendage. He pays a price in sanctions. They're a source of crime and instability in Russia itself because the gangsters who have gathered there, they sort of spill back over into Russia. And it doesn't give him what he wants. You know, Ukraine is not changing its calculus based on the Donbass. And, you know, the U.S. is not changing its calculus based on that. So it's a lever that doesn't do anything. Uh, And he still pays a price for it. So that's that's a pretty bad deal on Putin's side. I'm sure we want to talk a little bit more, of course, about the present situation and, and possible future scenarios. But I do want to take a step back first for a second. Where does Putin's policy in the Middle East, in particular in Syria, fit into this story? Well, this worries me a lot uh, in the present moment. and It's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the piece in Foreign Affairs and lay out the reasoning that Putin might use for a real war, a real you know, sort of major war. Uh, in Europe, uh, but of course uh, on the territory uh, of Ukraine. So Soviet Union had a long-standing relationship with Syria going back to the 1970s of military cooperation and shared basing and such. And, uh, you know, Putin watched with great discontent as the Arab Spring unfurled around the Middle East uh, and uh, watched with great discontent as well when the Arab Spring uh, reached Syria and threatened the political prospects uh, of Putin's you know, sort of friend and ally Bashar al-Assad uh, in Syria. And so in the summer of 2015, Russia made uh, quite a bold military move uh, and brought air power into Syria. And I think by most assessments, changed the direction of the civil war in Syria, made it possible for Assad to, uh, to hang on uh, and sort of dash the hopes that the U.S. had for a different kind of government in Syria. But more than that, I think what Putin acquired, and I feel this is close to a sort of factual truth, it's not just a perception, what he acquired was a lot more leverage in the Middle East. So he was treated with a new kind of respect. He was able to develop his relationships with the Gulf Arab states. He was able to develop his relationship with Netanyahu in Israel, who he had over a barrel because of Russian air power. Uh, In Syria, he was able to expand arms sales uh, throughout the Middle East based on the Russian military venture uh, in Syria. So it was win-win, really, for Putin. He paid a pretty small price. It was not that costly. And he got the leverage that he's always seeking on the international stage. What worries me is that he'll apply a similar logic to Ukraine. They, the West, they're not going to listen to us. Nobody's going to take us seriously in this country if we just make a case for ourselves. We can go to the UN and say what, what it is that we want for Ukraine, but it's not going to go anywhere. And if we just try to convince Secretary Blinken and President Biden that... Um, Ukraine should be made a neutral country, made it to a neutral country. It should be Finlandized in the language of the Cold War. It's not going to go anywhere. Probably Putin is right. If he makes the verbal case for that, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not going to fly. So Putin could conclude from that that 
what gives me leverage is military power. And when I use it, uh, that's what gives me a seat at the table. That's what gives me a vote. Now, of course, Ukraine is very different from Syria, and there are lots of ways in which that analogy uh, might break down. But if he does apply that logic, uh, I think we're in for a very violent uh, couple of months, or the war could be next year or the year after. It doesn't have to be this winter. But uh, if, if he does decide to go to war, uh, I, I would worry greatly uh, that he would do so because he's learned the lessons I was just describing a moment ago from his intervention in Syria. Well, and I guess that comes at a core question, Michael. Has, has American policy, and for that matter, European policy as well, has it reinforced uh, the perception on Putin's part that the countries to his west will only take him seriously and only compromise if he uses force? It's an irony if that's true, and I don't know if it's true, but it's an irony if it's true, because I've read, I think, a dozen op-eds in the last 48 hours that say that the only language that Putin understands uh, is force, and so therefore it's necessary to arm Ukraine and sort of, or perhaps even send troops for the U.S. to Ukraine, because that's what will uh, get Putin, uh, that will get Putin to uh, to listen. Um you know, Putin has said when it comes to, for example, the open door policy of NATO, which is that every country has a right to join uh, and you, know, you can't sort of forswear or qualify that, uh, Putin has said it sounds to him like a broken record every time he hears it, like he just can't get, uh, he can't get through. So I think on a handful of issues, he does feel like there's just no diplomatic wiggle room. Uh, and so he might uh, have to resort to, to force. But I do think that Putin, all, uh, sort of on the other hand, knows that if he widens the war in Ukraine, it carries enormous risk for him. Uh, it doesn't, there's no guarantee that he would win. Uh, any kind of occupation of Ukraine uh, could be terribly bloody uh, and uh, horrific. In fact, if Putin uh, creates a much larger quagmire for himself in Ukraine, he could really fall from power. You could think in this case of the 1905 war between Russia and Japan, which is a prelude uh, to the Russian Revolution, Nicholas II, uh, you know, sort of destroys himself. Or an example that Putin would be closer to the Afghan war for the Soviet Union, which is uh, uh, an ingredient in the demise uh, of the Soviet Union. So in that sense, I think Putin probably would not want to subscribe too resolutely to the notion that all the West understands is force. I think he would like to, a little bit as he did today, mix the language of force with the language of persuasion and see where it gets him. And if he can get what he wants without having to use the force you know, sort of wonderful, but I think he's going to up the ante now and threaten force more because he's so frustrated with, in his terms, how little he's gotten from, you know, rhetoric and, and what we might think of as conventional diplomacy. Well, Michael, I think that's a perfect place to transition to our current moment, and you made reference to the uh, virtual summit, the two-hour discussion that occurred uh, between uh, President uh, Biden and uh, Vladimir Putin today. Um, uh, how do we understand the relationship today? What are the possibilities? This is a case, I think, where the historical framework you've given us, which is incredibly helpful, shows how complicated policymaking is. There's not an obvious pathway forward. There isn't a clear missed opportunity that I've heard you talk about, nor is there a clear alternative to the uh, uncertainties, insecurities, and conflicts that have been pervasive in this relationship. So, so, so how do we understand our current moment and what are the options on the table, at least from Washington's point of view? I'll start on a positive note. I, 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 I don't feel very optimistic about what's, what's coming for us, and I'll try to lay out the reasons for that pessimism in just a moment, but I'll start with, with, with a bit of optimism. I think one of the 
good things to observe in the last, say, eight, nine months is that Putin and Biden seem to be capable of a working relationship. And Jeremy, you and I both know as historians, students of the Cold War, uh, that hasn't always been the case. Truman didn't have that with Stalin. (laughs) You know, know, various uh, Soviet leaders in the early 80s didn't have that with Reagan. Uh, it's, it's not to be taken for granted. And in the history of the U.S.-Russian relationship, broadly speaking, it, you know, a, a personal sort of working connection can go a long way. Uh, and I think Biden is very skilled uh, at not stigmatizing Putin verbally, not directly. He's very skilled at treating him, in a sense, at least, you know, sort of as the optics go, as an equal. Uh, and he sort of invites that working relationship. And I think Putin, in his own ways, he's very respectful uh, in his public statements about Biden, not about American politics, not about the United States, but about Biden. He's been respectful so far. So I don't know where that will take us, but that is uh, a a very valuable attribute of the current situation, especially uh, in the current situation. The reason I'm pessimistic is sort of is, 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 is structural. Exactly. There isn't an easy missed opportunity that the U.S. can just uh, correct. Uh, and NATO membership is a bit of a red herring here. I think Putin has been very explicit in the last couple of months. It's not just NATO membership that angers him. It's the tightening military relationship between the United States uh, and Ukraine, which you don't need NATO for that. But you have exercises going on. You have you know, weapons that are being sent. You have training exercises. Uh, that relationship is clearly ongoing and developing, and Putin uh, really objects to that. But I don't think Biden is going to reverse that and sort of pull back uh, and, you know, sort of end that relationship. I don't see how he could get away with that politically. I don't think he wants to do it. And I don't think he wants to do it because Putin is pressuring him to do it. And I also don't think that Putin is going to change his mind. I think what Putin has laid out in the last year, which is a very aggressive interpretation of the, of the current situation, I think he believes it. I don't think these are empty threats. And I don't think he's gathering soldiers at the border, um, you know, on a whim. Uh, I think it's all very, very seriously intended. So if Biden is not going to back down and Putin is not going to back down, you know, <clears throat> what's going to happen? I think we're clearly on a collision course. I think the best we can hope for under those circumstances uh, is that Biden would, as I believe he did today, lay out uh, what the U.S. red lines are uh, and lay out the basic outlines of what his response will be. The U.S. has lots of economic tools that they're not using, lots of sanctions and other kinds of tools that could be used uh, and I think Biden sort of <laughs> threw the book at Putin today uh, in that regard. And you know, there are other ways in which the U.S. could cause real problems for Russia in the event of a uh, of a wider war. The assumption I'm, I'm making here is that Biden is not going to get directly involved uh, in a war between Ukraine and Russia. He's going to hold back militarily, but he'll you know sort of push on uh, on other fronts. So I think you do that first. But at the same time, I think the U.S. needs to show leadership and imagination when it comes to diplomacy. You know, the U.S. has not been involved in the diplomacy around Ukraine. They sort of outsourced it, to put it a little bit impolitely, to France and Germany, who have done very little. And Europe is, you know, basically passive and absent at the moment, which is heartbreaking uh, to observe. But U.S. holds the major cards in this situation, so they should really push, you know, bring Putin to Washington uh, and have him talk about Europe. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, you know, sort of so be it. Uh, think in somewhat new terms. Are there ways of reconfiguring these structures uh, around NATO? There may be. Are there ways of using diplomatic finesse uh, to alter the dynamic with some of these things? I mean, the basic fact of the matter is that the United States does not want Ukraine 
uh, in NATO. So there's an absurdity uh, to, uh, to this back and forth in a way. Can we cut through that absurdity in a creative way uh, that's also, you know, sort of honors Ukraine's, uh, you know, basic needs for, 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 for sovereignty and statehood, uh, et cetera. You know, I don't have the perfect answers there. I think they're very hard to locate and define, but my point would be use everything you have at the moment to search for those answers because the alternatives are so, are so horrible. So that's what I would advise, you know, strong, you know, clear uh, set of, of punitive measures that would be taken in the event of, in the event of greater violence, but also imagination energy, creativity in American diplomacy in this area. We haven't seen that much of it for the last 10 years. It's it's such a good point. Uh, and the imagination and creativity can be things at the personal as well as at the state-to-state level. Um, and the elements of preserving the status quo sound very much like containment in many respects, right? Just keeping the situation where it is, or to quote Zachary's poem, maintaining the most careful stalemate. I mean, I think that's what you see as the optimum outcome here, right, Michael? Yes, I think a careful stalemate uh, is uh, is a very good point. I think that in the history of diplomacy, it's, it's rare for a problem really to get solved, and maybe that was to come full circle in our conversation. That was the fallacy of the 1990s, more so than hubris and, and, and arrogance. It was just that we thought that we had solved the problem. You know, how ridiculous in retrospect. Nobody's ever solved the problem uh, of how to organize Europe. It's always been a patchwork quilt of ethnicities and nation states and empires, and there's always been uh, been conflict. But, um, you know, a careful stalemate and you know, channeling somebody you've written uh, extensively on, uh, Jeremy, the, the, the spirit of Henry Kissinger in this respect, we could go back through Kissinger really to Bismarck uh, and think about the kinds of stalemates that he uh, that he structured. So maybe we could incentivize Russia into a stalemate. That I think would be a good outcome. Yes, that that sounds like the the height of realpolitik, in fact, uh, and it makes a lot of sense. Zachary, uh, for for young listeners and and those like yourself who care a lot about foreign policy and have an, an idealistic agenda, want to see the world made a better place, want to see dictators overthrown, want to see some version of greater democracy and uh, addressing climate change and all these other things is a is a stalemate enough and 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 if it's the best we can do how do we how do we convince ourselves and educate ourselves in this area to pursue that well i think at the very least it's possible um i think that my generation and and uh and the generation before mine has unlike Unlike our parents and generations before us, we don't have that real sense of rivalry and antagonism with Russia and the Soviet and the former Soviet Union that for for decades was ingrained in American society. And so I think there is opportunity for cooperation and creativity within that framework. But I I, I don't think we're going to see some 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 grand kumbaya moment in the next few years. <laughs> now, international politics, as Michael said a few minutes ago, rarely has anything close to a kumbaya. It, it might have a oh my gosh moment, uh, or another word I was thinking of that we won't use, but uh, it doesn't have kumbaya very often. Michael, I think that that sort of leads us to our final question for you, and and one that we frequently ask. You know, what what can our listeners do to better inform themselves and better prepare themselves? Those who care about these in- incredibly complex issues, issues that the average citizen really doesn't have much influence over. Uh, nonetheless, how can an engaged democratic citizenry be better prepared? What would you recommend? The first point I would make, and it, and it, and it follows from 
what Zachary just said a moment ago. Zachary said that he didn't have the sort of his generation didn't have the personal experience of the Cold War rivalry that you, Jeremy, and I uh, had uh, when we were kids. Uh, you know, we can remember the film The Day After, and uh, you know all of the the high points, the cultural high points of the uh, of the uh, of the Cold War. None of us, Michael. Please don't forget the important Rocky movie where he knocks out the Russian. <laughs> Firefox and you know and on and on it went uh, Red Dawn and you know the um, the whole panoply of that of that stuff that we just uh, absorbed as uh, as kids but none of us has a memory of the Second World War so at this moment I feel compelled to sort of go back uh, and even get away from history and, and think of a film like Grand Illusion uh, or All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, and we need to remind ourselves, uh, every diplomat should be doing this constantly, and those of, us, those of us who engage in these questions of diplomacy and international affairs, we need to remind ourselves of the awfulness of war. And that has to compel in us a kind of seriousness, a kind of uh, uh, desire, even if we know some of the problems to be, you know, sort of ultimately insoluble, uh, but a desire to do our best uh, and also to preserve to the extent we can without appeasement and without naivete, but to preserve uh, the preconditions for uh, for peace. So I would put that front and center in terms of how we uh, approach this question because peace really cannot be taken for granted. And, you know, <laughs> sort of a second point that I'll make, and I hate melodrama and I hate hyperbole, but I'm going to engage in some here. If Putin begins a wider war, he's going to have very little capacity to control it. Uh, and, you know, that will be true for perhaps Ukraine and sort of other countries in the, in, the, in the surrounding area. But it's a very, very scary prospect because I would be surprised if Poland and the Baltic republics, if there were a really, were a really big war between Ukraine and Russia, that they would want to jump in. Uh, and they would not just want to send uh, ammunition and, and, uh, and material to, to Ukraine, they would want to fight. Uh, and if that's the case, then I think Russia could be drawn into a war with some of these countries, and we've got really something resembling uh, the First World War uh, here in our uh, <laughs> faltering but also glittering uh, 21st century. So we have to have that imagination of, uh, of disaster. We have to be able to think in those terms, I think, to have uh, the opposite reaction to that, which is the desire to, uh, to really work on the problem. So I will fault our policymakers and I will include myself in this category from 2014 to 2016. I think we didn't work hard enough on Ukraine. I think the, the crisis came and the sort of fighting passed by 2015 uh, and this, you know, not very careful stalemate set in and we just didn't do enough on it. So let's scare ourselves to a degree. Let's remind ourselves of how important peace is for every good agenda that's out there from dealing with climate change to issues of social equity uh, and other things. Uh, and let's, you know, sort of do all of that for the sake not of passively staring at this problem, but of thinking of, uh, of, of, of active solutions. And that should be a kind of synergy, I think, between the citizens that you engage in your program uh, and the policymakers who are hard at work here in Washington uh, addressing this very issue. You know, it, it's so well said, Michael, and, and inspiring what you've just laid out. Uh, it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite passages from George Kennan's writing about American diplomacy, right, where he talks about the United States as a large dinosaur <laughs> that's very comfortable in its, in its habitat. And it takes a lot. It has to be whacked to actually wake up. And, and Ukraine seems far away. Russia seems so far away. 
Uh, and it's good that we don't think in Cold War terms. That Zachary made that point very well. But I think you've also pointed out that, that we have such a strong interest in stability in this part of the world and uh, being more engaged and at least more informed as citizens uh, and electing people who at least take these issues seriously. Uh, I'm not sure there's an easy solution, but we at least need people in office in Congress and elsewhere who, who are serious about these issues. That's probably a good, a good place to start and maybe a little concern about the future in this area will encourage that kind of attention in our politics. Right. Take, take nothing for granted. Uh, and, you know, let's have a good period now. There may well be a sort of lull uh, in, uh, in the tension. So let's, let's use this as a period of deliberation uh, and, you know, very serious and careful, of course, historically informed uh, discussion uh, and on that basis, sort of move forward with, uh, with with the word of today's conversation with with creativity, with creativity and and careful stalemate, as Zachary has has told us. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. As always, you you've provided us uh, a rich historical context. You've also given us insights into how that context matters for today, and you've given us some inspiring thoughts on at least how how we can begin to design or create some kind of pathway forward. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Two such careful hosts uh, could could result in no intellectual stalemate. So I, I have you <laughs> both uh, to thank uh, with with uh, you know with, with with great great fondness for you both. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to read Michael's most recent book, The Abandonment of the West. Many of the themes we've talked about actually come through there. And his most recent article, co-written with Michael Kaufman in Foreign Affairs, Russia Won't Let Ukraine Go Without a Fight. That was published in uh, late November of 2021. Zachary, thank you for your scene-setting and thought-provoking poem as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.